0: A pastor by the name of Scott Johnson would um, turn all the lights down real low for the Christmas Eve service and read. And uh, we were talking about nostalgia that when you think back to previous Christmases when you were a small child, um, there's something about those memories that are just special and they're warm, uh, they're nostalgic. And it's, it's almost impossible to find them again in your present life. They're just too good of memories uh, that if you look for them, you never really find them. Uh, the nostalgia of going back home to what Christmas could have been years ago. But here we are making memories right now. And um, it's here that we actually uh, finish our sermon series speaking about Jesus Christ as the new Israel, the Israel of God. And I invite you, if you have your uh, Bibles or follow along on the screen... We'll be looking at Matthew 2, uh, where Jesus Christ enters into this world and he is visited by three wise men. Well, there I go again. Not three, just wise men. Don't know how many there were. That song is very, very, uh, stays in your mind. Um, Here is Matthew uh, chapter 2. The visit of the wise men. legally titled King of the Jews at this time. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them when the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. And that was important for Matthew to mention as he describes the Messiah himself. Hosea said that referring to a nation called Israel. And Matthew applied it to an individual named Jesus. But he saw them as the same thing. Because he saw what God was actually doing through this. He knew what the coming of the Messiah meant. And it really has a lot to do with that word we mentioned, which is nostalgia. The word nostalgia uh, means Home sickness. Nostos means home or homecoming, to go to your home. And the second part of the word has to do with pain, feeling pain about home. And so we use the word appropriately so. It's a useful word because it captures something of our experience, which is the pain of reminiscing of a warm experience in your life. The pain of thinking back, and not so much visceral pain, but maybe a longing pain. A type of pain that you have where you look for something that once was. This is nostalgia. And Christmas is is full of nostalgia. It is so many memories from year to year, as you might recall from when you were once a child. A young child running under the tree to get presents, or walking into the kitchen to smell new cookies that your mother was baking. This is a nostalgic kind of season, a nostalgic moment. Perhaps these lights uh, being off and the, the candles and uh, the tree are creating nostalgia for a young child right now that they will think back to for many years. As I was told at first when this church was planted. Nostalgia is a powerful thing. And the reason it is is because it's magical. We push painful things out of our mind. And so for me, I remember my grandmother's house. And you might have had a similar experience. I can almost remember vividly walking through the front door of her house when she was baking bread. And it was the smell of that bread that filled the kitchen. You could smell it outside as you came in. Particularly on a Christmas day when all the family is coming together. And so if I go back there, the scent, the smell, is like if I smell bread again, even similar to that, it almost transports me back to that moment. There's few things that are so powerful for memory as the sense of smell. And now I think back to that, and I think, "Wow, that was beautiful. It was warm. Small child, no worries. Get in the back of the car with all the toys travel over to grandma's house boy there was never christmas is never like that again and see that is the magic you could say of nostalgia because the reality probably was that my brother and i fought the whole way there (laughs) and we were throwing toys at each other or fighting over who had a better toy or being jealous or whatever and causing consternation in the family and then my dad screaming back be quiet this is going to be a great christmas best christmas ever And then what happened is I opened that front door to go into Grandma's house and smelt the bread. But what nostalgia does, what our minds do, is I don't remember the fight. I don't remember all the consternation. But I do remember the bread. And it creates this magical, almost unrealistic memory of once what was. And knowing it's locked in time, never to be had again. And that produces perhaps a little bit, of pain. And so here is three magicians or more, magic men, magi. And there is something magical happening here. It's very weird for the Gospel of Matthew, which was written to Jewish audience, to highlight magi in the story. The Jewish people did not approve of Eastern mystical arts. It would not make sense that they would make these magi the primary characters in the coronation of their king, the king of the Jews, which shows you all the more of how remarkable it is that this is actually how it happened. See, these magi, these wise men, they were wise. They were wise not in the fact that they just knew a few nice proverbs. They were the intellectual and cultural elites of their time. They were versed, they, in all the sciences, and they also were the soothsayers. They were the astrologers and astronomers, which were the same thing in the ancient world. A mixture of the best knowledge of science and information that they had, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians and Babylonian arts, yet also wrapped up into divination and bizarre eastern practices. They were the kingmakers of their day. They were the senate. They were the judges. They were the ones that actually approved monarchical power. And here we have these men traveling miles and miles, coming from nothing more, we're told, than the east. East of Rome was a very powerful empire that Rome came up against and was never able to overcome, which was the Parthian Empire. These are men associated with the Parthian Empire. They're powerful men. When they arrive in Herod's courts in Jerusalem, they are taken very seriously, and they make Herod very, very uncomfortable. The Roman Republic fought against the Parthian Empire before the time of Christ's appearance. Three wars, and they could not win. These men would not have come with only a few camels and a few pieces of gold. They would have come in hundreds. They would have come with armed soldiers. They would have come in an entourage. And they would have came straight into Herod's chambers and said, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod is a violent man. Here he will shortly kill all the children in Bethlehem. But he is afraid of them for what they represent. And the fact that they apparently know something about this king that should be approaching Jerusalem. And let us look at what they bring. These wise men bring three gifts. We're told they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. These are wealthy gifts. These are gifts that are given to a dignitary. Gold, of course, is for kings. Frankincense literally means pure incense. Pure fragrance. And myrrh is a type of resin that comes from the tree that has aloe type of properties and also fragrance as well. They're associated with the coronation of a king, to be sure. But I believe there's something more here. And for our purposes this evening, we'll see what is happening right now as Jesus has entered the world. Is that he is, we can say, God's homecoming. God is returning back home. To be with his people. This is why it has to do with Israel, the people of God. The reason that the Jews, the Israelites, were so remarkable, it had nothing to do with their ethnicity or geography or genetics. It had to do with the fact that God For no reason, it says in Deuteronomy 7. No reason at all, out of His good graces, chose to dwell with them. To make home with them. And they had a temple. And many ancient cultures had a temple. And there are churches all over the world. And there are mosques. And there is everything in between. But there is only one living God. And Israel's temple, in its holy place, which was laden with gold, had what was the Shekinah glory presence of God, the bright, light, glorious presence of God that dwelt inside his people. But not only gold in the temple, there was myrrh in the temple. In Exodus 30, the aloe, the anointing oil of the priests, had myrrh all through it. That this oil was to anoint anyone who would come into God's house. It was to set them apart as holy from anyone else in the world. Apart from this, they would enter God's holy presence and die. In the temple, there was also frankincense. In Exodus 30, it was the incense of God's house. Maybe perhaps some of you have. Nice candles. You walk into your house, it smells beautiful. You have vaporizing things. So did God. His front door, his middle room of his house was just one big fire for fragrance, for beauty, for the smell. Before you could even approach His holy dwelling, where He would reside on earth in glory. In glory, not in His omnipresence now, which is in this room. But there is a glorious presence of God that was given to no one else except Israel. And surrounding His presence was a holy of holies room laden with gold, an ark covered with gold. And anyone who would come in would have to be showered with myrrh and have to pass through a wafting cloud of frankincense. Nostalgia, the smell of the presence of God, that is what frankincense was. And here we have the opportunity to look upon Israel once more. The story And I will bring it out at this moment. And we have done it through this sermon series. And it so much needs to be looked at once more. Because the beauty of seeing the story of Israel. And the story of the gospel. And the story of Christmas. Is that once it's repeated once and twice. By the third time. This becomes beautiful. Israel was first a man. Before it was a nation. There was a man named Israel. Who wrestled with another man. He... Came to the face of God. He had the glorious presence of God presented before him, and he had to leave before the sun came, lest he see this man's face who is wrestling, who would be the face of God, Peniel, which Jacob called it. And he would die, because he could not look upon the face of God and live. But Israel only began as a nation, entered into, as the story goes, this is the whole story of Scripture, finding it's point right here at Jesus Christ, that Israel went into a nation called Egypt. And one man with his family of 70 went down. And when they came out, the water bursted open in the Red Sea. And a whole entire nation came out of Egypt. And that's why Hosea says in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Like a woman's water breaking when she gives birth, the Red Sea parted. And a whole nation of Israelites came out. And there was Israel. And Jesus, we're told, is like that. Jesus came out of Egypt, like my son. As they went through the wilderness after Israel, they were seeking to enter a promised land. And a wise man, a soothsayer, a prophet, a seer from the east, similar to this story, named Balaam, was summoned to travel west. And he traveled west into Israel, and he looked upon Israel from a high place. And from that high place, he looked down, and he saw a multitude which no one could number. Thousands and thousands of people in the nation of Israel. And he came there to try to curse them, and he could not curse them. And he produced four prophetical oracles, each successively becoming more fine-tuned and more detailed. And by the fourth one, the final one, he looked upon the multitude of these numberless people, this mass of people of God, and he found in his final oracle in Numbers 24 that he said he saw a star. He saw a star. He said that in the latter days, Numbers 24 17, he saw a star that should come out of Jacob, a scepter that shall rise out of Israel. The symbol of royalty and power, a star and a scepter, will come out of this nation. And he saw it from thousands of years ago. And then a great king, or ruler rather, was raised up in Israel, named Moses. And he led the people through the wilderness. But he didn't just lead the people. There's a very bright light, a tower, a fire that led them by night, and a cloud of the glory of God, the very presence of God, that led them by day. God's glorious presence was in their midst everywhere they went throughout the wilderness. And then they entered this promised land. After Moses had built them a tent for God to dwell in, called a tabernacle, the nation became more mature, more established. And there was a king named Solomon who had great wealth, and he built for the first time a temple a temple built of stone, a beautiful structure. And we're told that when Solomon had finished completing that temple, we're told in 1 Kings 8 that the glory of God filled that building so that no one could enter, and they all fell down. They were in the middle of a worship service. The worship band was doing great. They were hitting all their notes. And then all of a sudden, it got real, and everyone fell on their face. Because God's presence filled that building. It was amazing. Because Israel was like no other nation. They had the living God living among them. They had to be holy. They needed frankincense and myrrh and gold and all the riches to encase the glory of God and try in all our feeble human attempts to exalt him in some level of honor which he deserved. And so they built a temple. And yes, they tried. But it didn't last. And it didn't last because they were still like you and me. They were sinful. They were so sinful They were full of so much sin. And God, over hundreds and hundreds of years, was long suffering with them. He remained with them. He tried his best to stay in that little shack that they built for him. But it was too long. And Ezekiel had the vision in Ezekiel 9. It was a prophetical vision in which he saw. The glory of God shining in bright light. In Ezekiel 9, he saw the glory of God leaving the temple in this vision. In Ezekiel 9, the glory moved. The glorious, shining presence of God moved to the threshold of the door of the temple. And then in the next chapter 10, it moved to the east gate of that temple. The outer region. And then in the next chapter, Ezekiel 11, it moved to the eastern hill outside the city of Jerusalem from the temple. The success of vision was God's glory was leaving Israel. The only thing that made Israel, Israel was this. And so sure enough, as God's glory departed from that temple, there was no reason for the nation to ever stay. There was no protection The Babylonians came in immediately and destroyed them. For God had left them. And their temple was turned to powder. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Would God leave you? Let's just say God knows everything about you. Let's say that he sees you for all you are. Let's say that you want to go to heaven, that you want to be with him, but you know you're so sinful and can't come close enough. Would he leave you? When we offend one another in this church, how long is your suffering of love? How many times can someone offend you before you write them off? If that be your faith, you have no hope. You have no hope with him. Hosea 11 says, I am God and not a man. I will love you. No matter how many times you fall, I will love you. But then the story does continue. After they were exiled in Babylon for so many years, they were able to return back to their land. And there was a man who led them, his name was Zerubbabel. And he was given the ability to actually rebuild the temple. And he went to rebuild the temple, we're told, in Ezra 6, and they built it. They made the foundations, they made the cornerstones, they put it all back together. When Moses built the tabernacle, the glory of God came in and dwelt that no one may approach. When Solomon built his temple, the glory of God came in and dwelt that no one may approach because the living God was in his home. And then when Zerubbabel built his temple, nothing happened. It was just like every other temple of every other nation. A temple built by human hands, a religion invented by the minds of men. The machinations and the inventions of pagan religion. Philosophy. Nothing more than philosophy was left. It was different. Ezra 3. The old men had a moment of nostalgia. They were old enough to remember the previous temple. And they saw it and were told that they wept. Because they could remember what it once was. And they could see the new one that was built. And it was wrong. Their sin had corrupted. Their sin had altered something. A relationship, a closeness, a uniqueness with God they once had was not there again. And all they had was the reminiscence of frankincense. As if I were to remember my grandmother's cooking. All I have is the memory. She is gone. The food is gone. She doesn't live there anymore. It's over. Do you realize... The antimony that we live. That we have love for one another. We have memories that outlast our lives. And fools will say there is no God and there is no meaning to life. Well then deal with your own memories. Deal with the value and the tears you have of your loved ones. Of the homecoming you had. Of the memories that can never be had again. And when they remembered this old house that was built, they cried. Because they knew the new one was different. There's no glory here. And this prophet Haggai years later said in Haggai 2.9 that the glory of this temple, this latter temple that will come, will actually far exceed the glory of the previous temple. That God will not abandon you. He will not abandon his people. He will remain. And they wait hundreds and hundreds of years And here we have Christmas. Here we have the star. They came to Herod and said, Where is he who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. His star. We have seen it. Some say it is a comet. Some would try to say it's a planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which matches with 7 B.C., which is still off. Some say it's a nova. Chinese astronomers have a record of a nova occurring in 5 BC. The best interpretation, what really this star is, the star of Jesus Christ, his star, we're told, that rises. It is a miraculous, phenomenal shining of the glory of God. Notice this star comes up. And from the west, they can see it, and they know enough. From the east, they can see it. They know enough to travel west. And then we're told that it led them to Herod, to Jerusalem. So it pinpointed them to a city. They landed in the center of the Jewish city, Jerusalem. Well, that's interesting. But then from there, we're told that after they spoke with Herod in Jerusalem, they left, and they looked up, and they saw a star. And that star led them to Bethlehem. Now, I don't know how good the GPS was back then, but that's not how stars work, for Bethlehem is six miles south of Jerusalem. You don't look up to the skies and navigate yourself for only six miles. It might help you get across an ocean, but this is not a natural star. Not only does it pinpoint them to the city, it goes so far from 10 to 11, uh, verse 10 to 11, the star lands them perceivably to the house where it says they had great rejoicing and they saw the star and then they entered into the home, the very home in which Jesus Christ was. This was a dynamic, it was a phenomenal, it was a miraculous bright light that was moving and it was phenomenal. And by that I mean, it's not something that everyone could see. Not everyone is a Christian, you know. Not everyone loves Jesus Christ. Not everyone has actually seen his light. Herod didn't see it. We're not told that thousands were around the house. Only these wise men were given the ability. God gave them a perception. He opened their eyes to see something glorious that they were looking for, that they followed, that they came to his house. It's amazing. In Paul's conversion in Acts 9, he is on the road to Damascus. And what happens is there is a very bright light that shone to him and blinded him. And a voice came to him saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? But Saul wasn't alone when that light showed up. There were men all around him and we're told in Acts 9-7 that the men around him heard the voice, but they saw no light. So Paul was knocked down, blinded by the glory of God. He saw the glory of God and he was changed. And all the people around him only heard a voice. They didn't see anything. These men are seeing something. Not everyone's looking for these things. But some have seen the light of the glory of God. This is connected too with the shepherds. The same time shepherds appeared and we're told there was bright light when the angels appeared to the shepherds and glory shone all around. The glory of God is right above the home in which he has incarnated himself. That the glory of God has returned not to a temple, but to flesh and bones. The glory of God has come in Jesus Christ. Ezekiel saw the glory leaving east. And these men from the east see the glory traveling back west. Here we have Christ, who is a supernatural light. You think, well, what if it were a natural star? Well, what is more luminous or more substantial or more important than all the stars we could see tonight as we drive walk to our cars? Remember the amazing story that baffles them all. The beginning of our creation account as Christians, we would have this embarrassing, logical, illogical blunder. That it would be, as we open the very first page of Scripture, God will humiliate your intellect to say, Will you believe this? That on the first day, God said, Let there be light. And then on the fourth day, He made the stars. Here is a star. That is not like other stars. Here is a light that comes from old, a light before there were other lights. Here we have a supernatural light that outlasts all the heavenly lights, as we're told in Revelation 21. And I saw, John said, and I saw, and there was no temple in the city. For the temple, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives light. And the lamp is the lamb. This is the light of heaven. Coming to rest upon the ark of God. The temple of God. As he has built his own dwelling place. He has come home. And he has come home to dwell with you and with me. He has come home to be with us in this life and live for us that we might live. That he would not abandon us, leave us, or forsake us. This is the gospel. This is the ark of God. And it is gold. His name is Jesus Christ. Many are blinded by self-righteousness. Many are darkened by idols in their heart. Many are bitter with unforgiveness. But here we have Jesus Christ coming home. He extends himself to you. Let us pray. Father, you've extended yourself to us. You have come home and you invite us. You say you go to prepare a place for us. Lord, you began building this place by your own body. That where you go, we might be also. That if we were to translate ourselves to the highest heavens, we would not be the first man to do so. That you have made a way. You are the way, the truth, and the light. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we pray that you might fill us with this knowledge of you, Lord. We understand that you only make yourself known to those who are humble. You only make yourself known to those who repent and believe upon the Son. That if, Lord Jesus, we would lift you up, then we will see you. But if we will not lift you up, you will not show us your light. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would show us your light. Amen.